Blog Talk Radio. Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse. And my name is Kim Lakin. I am your host this evening. And my beautiful co-host is on with me this evening, Penelope. And um, we Hello. switch faces. Thank you. We do sometimes. Thank you, Kim. <laughs> Thank you for doing trading places with me tonight. Absolutely. Anytime. And then we have my other favorite co-host on, our, 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 all of our favorite co-hosts, I think, is Philip is on with us. So. <laughs> I look forward to talking to him, too. So this evening we are on scan number 3281 and um, here at NASCA, and that is to address issues that are related to childhood abuse and trauma, including sexual assault, violent or physical abuse, emotional traumas, and neglect. And we do so with two goals. One, by educating the public especially as it's related to helping society get over its taboo of discussing childhood sexual abuse, also known as CSA, and presenting facts showing child abuse to be a pandemic, worldwide problem that affects everyone, and two, by offering hope and healing through numerous paths, providing many services to adult survivors of child abuse and information for anyone interested in the many issues involving prevention, intervention, and recovery. And you can find all of that information on NASCA.org. So you go to N-A-A-S-C-A, which stands for the National Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse.org, and you can find any of the past scan numbers and listen to them for years going back, (laughs) decades. Um, again, we are on scan number 3281 this evening, and if you would like to be a part of our panel, we'd love to have you. Please call in on the guest line, which is 646-595-2118, and Penelope will meet you on the back line and see if you would like to ask a question or have anything to say. So we would love to have you join us and support whatever topic we're going to discuss this night. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'll go ahead and bring 
Penelope on, and um, I guess they call what we basically call this is a special topic night. So we ask whoever's calling in to maybe give us a topic about something that's going on and something that they're interested in, and then we can kind of go from there, and we never know what the topic's going to lead. So, so welcome, Penelope. So I was wondering um, if Philip had any um, thoughts about yeah. a topic tonight. Um, no pressure. I could, can unmute his line, I guess, if you want, Kim, or I can. Don't know if he had anything top of mind. If not, I did have a suggestion. So, well, uh, I'm trying to come the off guard to know if he had a humming topic. Yeah. You do? I don't. Okay. Oh, you don't. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you are. Well, well, then that's fine. Hi, Philip. So I think, you Hello, know, Kim. <laughs> there's so many topics, right? I feel like every day, you know, being in recovery, well, some days I think are, are a little bit more uh, smooth for me, a, a little bit more, um, I think, um, adjusted in terms of just, you know, being able to uh, manage myself in a, in a way that's, you know, healthy. Um, and um, uh, I feel like, you know, a full grown adult where I can, you know, navigate through the day's challenges. And there's other days um, and times when um, I think they're more difficult because, there's the messiness of um, being adult survivors of, of child abuse when it comes to um, the interpersonal relations um, within um, family. And um, sometimes it's in my own family of creation. You know, when I refer to that, that's my husband and my son. Um, and other times it's from my family of origin. Um, um, my mother and my brother and my sister. Um, and so, you know, this is for me, you know, an ongoing topic um, and an ongoing issue within recovery, um, especially when you're an adult survivor that that has the courage to um, break the silence, break the patterns, maybe sometimes being the only one to do it, um, and there's innate, I think, innate conflict um, within that. Um, so when I, you know, I refer to myself, and I know Kim and Philip, but you know, we're adults rather than child abuse, and we're we're out, you know, we're advocating for um, really the the mission statement of NASCA is to address all these issues. Um, and when when you're sometimes alone on an island within your family. Um, those interpersonal interpersonal relations can can be messy. I feel like it's like a current. Sometimes the current's calm. Sometimes the current has got some undercurrent. Maybe kind of that's a maybe a pun on being passive aggressive. And sometimes it's just really choppy water, um, meaning that it's just very overtly um, things are just very contentious. Um, so, you know, the topic really is just how do you navigate through um, the current 
of, you know, interpersonal relationships with your family. Um, and each day for me, I feel sometimes each day is different or each week is different. Each week is a different, a different current, you know, a different current. Um, uh, it's rarely smooth. And um, so I, I've, you know, that's been a very consistent um, topic for me and something that I've been working through consistently in my recovery, something I will admit that's so really difficult for me and I find very, very challenging. Um, and um, so uh, I just wanted to bring that out there. And then how do you, you know, how do you then address that? Um, what are the what are the things, the practices, um, modalities, if you will, that you implement um, or have tried to implement in, in working through these kinds of, you know, relational um, conflicts, well, conflicts or, um, like I said, you know, changing currents, if you will. Um, and I know one rule of thought, and I've, I've heard it, some people just actually don't, they separate from their families. You know, they do not, they no longer want to be integrated with their families, and they start a different life on a different path. Um, and um, sometimes family members are cut off in order to move forward in the healing process. And I'm not going to judge that. Um, I think everybody knows what's best for them um, at any given time, in any given situation. Um, I have taken the, the hope that I can still do the work and do the recovery work um, and still have open dialogue with my family of origin. And in that decision comes the currents, comes um, the changing tide, if you will. So um, something I struggle with all the time. And anyway, I wanted to bring that up. I know I'm, I'm being long-winded. I'm as a topic, Kim and Philip, and see what your thoughts are. Yeah, thank you, Penelope. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Did you want to say something, or you want you want me to go say for something? It, Ms. <laughs> I'm gonna use it. Yeah. Oh, you say something. I, um, I bet. I need to turn up my phone. Okay, there I go. I'm turning it up so I can hear you better. <laughs> um, I was going to ask you to say something, but I do have something to say. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I think that having a daily routine is something that helps. Yeah. Very good. I think you're right for a lot of people. And do you have it down pretty good that you feel pretty comfortable, your daily routine? Um, I've had it for and about a month, and that's all. Just a month. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to the laundromat, so I'm going to lose reception for like 20 or 30 minutes, but I should be back. That's a, oh, okay. Thank you, Bella. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Did you want to say anything else before you want to go? Yeah. Go ahead. No, I don't. I'm healed. But um, I've had a daily routine for like a month. And before that, I had another routine, and that lasts for like two weeks. So I just, yes, I guess like sometimes finding new daily routines, if you can't stick with your old ones, kind of helps. So the old one lasted just two weeks because you 
weren't happy about it, you didn't feel it, it wasn't working for you? Is that why it didn't To be last? honest, I'm not sure why it didn't last. Well, no, that's very, I mean, you're very insightful. I always like your perspective. I think, for me personally, yeah, I I think that I, it just depends on the day. And I think that it depends on what's going on, maybe even the day before. And, um, and if there's a lot of turmoil going on in the family, which there is right now. <laughs> and um, I was kind of sharing a little bit of that with Penelope before we started. Um, and I think you're absolutely right, too. Philip is the, the routine thing, and um, I I need to get into more of a routine because I am then I've kind of been in a depression and I haven't done everything that I should be doing, and I'm also getting ready for a wedding, so it's my son's wedding, so I'm all over the place, and I can jump you know from room to room all over the place even when I don't have so much going on. So when I do have a lot going on for me. It feels like just getting a little bit done here and I don't finish it and then getting a little bit done here and I can't finish it and then I go here and then by the end of the night I'm just overwhelmed because I didn't really finish anything. I just kept going from thing to thing. And I, so I, I really do look forward to being able to have that um, routine. And I, I actually got a job. I'm not sure. I mean, <laughs> it's kind of funny because I wasn't really looking for a job, but I'm really excited about it because I I think it'll get me out more and meeting people. And it's at an antique shop that's just right, like five minutes away from me. So it's really close. And um, just a lady, lady that owns it, one lady, and she has pretty much been running this herself for a few years now, and she's just starting to want to need help. So I'm excited Congratulations. about that. Thank you, Philip. <laughs> It'll only be a couple days a week, you know, so it's not going to be over, you know, a lot. And a lot of times my body can't handle it. So if I try and do too much, then I start to kind of break down, kind of break down. But I think it's a couple days a week will be good. Do you guys hear an echo? Am I echoing? No. No? Okay. You're echoing on my end. You, I am? Yes. Okay. I wonder if that's it. I don't know. But I know. My thought on it. Okay. It's Penelope. You know what? I think that's really great. I think it's, that's awesome. I think, you know, doing things like that and, and putting yourself out there and being a little bit adventurous and trying new things, um, to me, that that's that's always what brings me hope. Um, yeah. And um, and I think, you know, I, I've read somewhere um, in terms of like healing um, and, and the healing and the healing process that actually being adventurous and going kind of outside your comfort zone and trying something new is a sign of just um, really being, you know ready to just just to uh, what's the terminology I'm looking for you know 
can migrate away from the fold of what was the the, the prior pattern, right? You're you're migrating into a different way, into a different pattern, right? Into a more adventurous pattern. So um, it's it's an it's it's called self differentiation. You've heard that term out there. Yeah. But I think so many times, you know, we were so attuned to um, um, serving others or being, you know, governed by someone else's um, um, potential volatility. So we were just so attuned to their needs. We weren't attuned to our own. And so I think, you know, going out there and trying something new and getting a job, that sense of adventure is how we differentiate and break away from that. I think that's really, really great. Thank you. And Philip, I appreciate that. I um, Yeah, I, I am really excited because I think I'll learn a lot as well. I've always been fascinated with antiques, but um, my husband never really wanted them. I don't want to edit. You know, he's never read other people's junk. <laughs> Even though they, some of that junk is worth a lot of money. But this uh, antiques specifically she only gets things from France so everything in her store is flown over from France so a lot of really expensive stuff too and um, and she's so laid back I mean you walk in there and it's like a lot of antique shops where you see a lot of crystal <laughs> all over and you're like oh my gosh I'm gonna I'm afraid to even walk because I might hit something but um, and it's beautiful and she must do well because she, the place that she's at is kind of a little more high-end retail shop area. So um, she also has – this is the other thing that impressed me about her shop is even though she's got all that breakable stuff around, she goes, I welcome kids. I want kids to come in with their families and, mm-hmm. and have a good experience because – and then – and that was the other thing is she doesn't think of her shop as selling People, you know, you're not you're not going to sell people, Kim. I want them to have, and usually, when people are going into an antique shop, they're either looking for something specific or they're looking to remember something, you know, specific from their great grandparents or something. And um, so, it's she goes with me, it's all about the experience, and I want them to have just a really good experience and not feel like they're being pressured. I'm like, well, that's perfect for me because I don't like to picture people either. But, yeah, the kids can come in, and they she's got a little cradle, of antique cradle, cradle that they can play with, and it's got a bunch of stuffed animals in it. So she said, I just offer them a stuffed animal when they come in, and then, you know, they'll spend a lot of the time playing with the animal and holding on to the animal, and so and they don't touch as much stuff. That is so brilliant. And... And also, I think it's it's showing the kids that you trust them. You're going to, you know, give them this opportunity to do the right thing. And I'm all about learning, <laughs> all about teaching the little ones to learn, too. So, yeah, it's going to be a neat place. I'm excited about it. Have you seen the show Gilmore Girls? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and one of the the girl's friends, yeah, the mom has an antique shop. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, oh, no, you say antique shop, it reminded me of that. But I think that's... Yeah. 
that's fabulous. I think that's really great. Really great. No, I guess. Oh, well, as far as not, I guess I've never really worked in retail. I've worked in fast food when I was younger, but I've never really worked like in a retail job. And it's kind of odd because I I didn't wouldn't have even thought this when I went in for the interview, but going to do a ten ninety nine. So I basically I'm like a contract worker. I have to pay my own taxes and everything. But um mm-hmm. I'm not gonna be working a whole lot anyway. So I could probably keep it under control, but um yeah, no, I haven't worked retail. I've done, I've, I've done administrative stuff mostly. That's usually where, when I'm out working outside of the home, I'm doing some kind of administrative mm-hmm. stuff. And um, but it's been, well, the last place that I worked before I started having surgeries was my church. So I mean, I have kind of a wide range. <laughs> places that and then of course well, I, I do my classes too so you got a lot going on and you got a lot going on and you've got a lot going on that are I think it's great because it's uh how do I say this it's diverse you know you have a lot of di- di- diverse interests yeah yeah and I yeah. I yeah I enjoy that I think that's what I, I I think it's nice to get you know change change can be reinvigorating too especially if you're going through you know a stressful time um so yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah you know in terms of what i wanted to you know really think about having um, these conversations tonight i thought about you know, when 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 we're experiencing um I think um stress, you know, from the that manifests from the trauma um within our families, you know, how do we manage that? You know, how do we address it? You know, how do we work through, you know, in our in our as part of our healing journey when we get these um you know, waves of, um, uh, I guess, you know, familial feedback, um, and it can be stressful um, and triggering, you know, what are the things, what are the things that help to work through that and to get through that? And so it sounds like for you, change has been part of it, you know, focusing on the work that you're doing and kind of getting out of your comfort zone and having a new, you know, experience. Yeah, I think um, definitely for me, my therapist helped, and I haven't seen her for a while. So I noticed that. I noticed the change. I mean, I feel like I'm easier to manipulate by the people in my family that are known and to do that <laughs> and it's been I don't know it's been interesting to see 
how they're all reacting. So we were just talking a little bit before the show started about divorce and how kids react and everything. And I, my, I, I think I've mentioned before on the show that my, I struggle with my girls and it's a little odd to me, I guess, because I just, I have a vision of having a really close relationship with them, with them as they were adults and then especially as they start having kids and, and there are always little glimpses of that at times where it seems like that's fine and that, you know, way, the way it's going and they appreciate me for helping out. And then there's a, at least, you know, half of the time probably, I guess that would maybe even be fair. I would say more, but at least half of the time they're mad at me about something. And it's usually nothing that I really did. So, I, for instance, and talk, talk, talking along the lines of how the abuse affects us as adults is um, I didn't tell my children about my abuse when I was um, raising them because I didn't feel that they were, they needed to know that. It wasn't their burden to carry. And so I just kept it from them. And then when I started doing this work, I didn't know how to talk to them about it. I mean, they were adults by then, and I I didn't really know. But I would let them know everything that I'm doing, and I also, they, the very beginning of me teaching, I had them take a class. I just went over to my daughter's house, and, and all five of them were there, and they all took it, kind of. One of them might have slept through most of it. But, uh, <laughs> but I... <laughs> I thought that, um, I, I don't know, I just had a different vision, and I thought for sure because of all, you know, other stories that I hear of people who have started to tell their stories as adults, and then they have this great support from their family. And so then, again, I'm envisioning that, and I didn't get that. I got, you know, that they are... One of them says she's disappointed in me, and the other one says that she holds it holds against me that I didn't tell them. And so, I'm and I said to, you know, one of my daughters the other night, I said, when, how, how and when was I supposed to tell you? I've been telling you guys for years to come and talk to me if you want to know more. And um, I, I've mentioned too, but anybody who hasn't really heard, my oldest daughter decided to to listen to this podcast, it was, NASCA was one of the first places that I told my story. And um, she got on the NASCA website and listened to that, but then she didn't tell me. She hasn't talked to me about it. And apparently it was like a year ago or so. And, um, but we've been, she's been really distant. So I felt that. And then my other daughter decided with the last book that we had, that I was in with Pamela Pine, that um, she would get that book and read my story. And, uh, I mean, just for reference, that book specifically has so much less than the first book that I was in that I, that I wrote in another. And, um, but, and she didn't tell me either. But my son, who I'm, I've always been very close with, he told me that both of them had heard my story in, in different ways. And so I tried to reach out to them both 
separate times and say, you know, I am open to talk about anything you would like to talk about. You know, I now that it's all out there, I just didn't want to throw it out on them when they weren't ready. And um, they didn't appear to be ready because they didn't come to me at all. And so I've, you know, tried to continuously be very um, active in, in letting my family know what I'm doing. You know, I, I give my kids, my grandkids, body safety books. And so that's part of, you know, what they receive from me. They understand. Now, well, some of them, the little ones might not yet, but, you know, they understand that I'm a safe person. So I'm building that relationship with them so that I can be that safe person. But for some reason, I have my daughters on the other end talking badly about me. And so I've had a couple sleepovers with my granddaughter where she's opened up to me a, a lot and, um, you know, told me some of the things that I just think of. I, I, I can't imagine ever yeah. telling my 11-year-old daughter all of this stuff that they're, that they're mad at me about. And, um, yeah, it's just it's mind-boggling to me, and it hurts a lot because I gave birth to these people. <laughs> And you think that they would have, you know, a little bit of, yeah, I don't know. Were you going to say something, Philip? Okay, Philip dropped, but you know what, Oh, did he? I would encourage anybody who's listening in and streaming, if you'd like to call in, you know, it's 646-595-2118. You know, if you have a story on, you know, sharing your um your experience, um, your childhood um, experiences with your own children, um, and something that worked for you, or in the in the way that you did it, um, that was. Um, I mean, I know nothing's perfect, but that was um, well um, received. We would love to hear that because I think this is part of um, the resource that NASCA provides. Is that you know we tell our stories and we share our we share our journey and, and things that work and things that, that were difficult and, you know, um, uh, help that we got to, you know, work through these types of things like, you know, as an adult survivor of child abuse, you know, do you tell your children? How do you tell your children? When do you tell their, your children? At what age? It's a very, very, I, for me, in my, if, if you don't mind if I share my own you know, journey to even doing that. It's a very, very difficult decision. Um, I, every, because I, we lived in secrecy, you know, in my family of origin for so long, um, and that was the pattern, um, and that pattern was really born of fear. I mean, you didn't dare talk about it because the consequences were, were violent. Um, you kept your mouth shut. Um, so if you live in this um You've always been living living in this uh, bubble of fear of of ever telling the truth, Um, but you're an adult now, you know, independent of your family of origin, having your own family, um, you know, how do you um, work through that fear and how do you um, have these conversations um, and speak of these things that were um, forbidden? And as I said, how you do them in a way 
um, that's going to, you know, because part of us, we worry about it being traumatizing for them to hear these things. How do you do it in a way uh, that's um, going to accomplish the objective of, um, right, breaking the silence, helping to break the pattern, you know, to bring these things to awareness so that these behaviors don't continue on um, in, within, their, within them themselves and their own families. So um, I think this is a topic that is, is, it's, it's come up, I've, you know, it's come up in a lot of Nazca shows and a lot of personal stories. And so, again, if you're, if you're streaming in um, and you wish to join the panel, we encourage you to do so. If you have um, a story to share about, you know, disclosure of this to your, to your children, uh, then, again, the number is um, 646-595-2118. For me, in my own, in my own, the process that I, I went through um, and going from a, a home where we do not talk about these things, um, in my process of recovering healing, I realized that secrecy was the most prolific enabler of abuse and that cycle to continue. And that's why it had continued in my own family for generations and generations. So um, that was step one, is to realize that it, it, it needed to be, truth needed to come out. Um, step two was I worked with a therapist, my psych, clinical psychologist, um, in having some help. Um, from a, you know, child development with my children at their ages, what would be the appropriate age and time and venue for this to be disclosed. Um, so I had input. And then um, I had just gone to NASCA show and told my story for the first time, and I part of it was I didn't want my children hearing about it in the world. I wanted them hearing it from me directly. Um, so I chose to go to a safe place, um, a place where my children feel safe, a place where I feel safe. We have tr- we had trust and a facilitator to help to um, disseminate my story, and that was our priest. So that was my process, you know, um, the realization that um, it, it needed to be disclosed and why to break the cycle of secrecy. Um, input, you know, and guidance from a helping professional, um, that was my psychologist. Um, And then the venue, you know, in a facilitator, which was within our church and within our priest. And I can't say that it was was not this perfect, um, you know, um, discussion and dialogue and and unveiling of facts. Um, There was anger. There was disbelief. There was... um, um, disgust. There was some, yeah, and disbelief, not only disbelief that these things could happen, but disbelief was, was I really telling the truth? Um, there were, you know, there was a lot of fallout. Um, but um, so it wasn't perfect. So I can't say this is, you know, this is just what worked for me. Um, it wasn't perfect. It was a way that I felt was the best safest way to get the information since, you know, I don't have the wherewithal. I was an adult child abuse. I was, you know, born in a family that did not communicate, did not know how to resolve conflict constructively, did not know how to have these kind of conversations. I knew I needed help. So I got the help. 
um, and I did it in the best way that I thought, you know, it would be the, the healthiest way for them to receive the information. Um, and Kim and I have spoken. Um, there's been anger. There's been resentment. Um, there's been some out of my children. There's been some acting out. Um, I'm noticing as the older they get, um, and with maturation comes, I think, more um, understanding of why. Um, it's also hard to hear that your own parent was hurt, and it's hard to know that the perpetrators were within the family, people that they know and love. So um, I think that's also a process for them to come to terms with the truth. And um, it's hard. It's hard to watch them go through that process. So that's what I you know, would like to add conversation. I hope that all made sense. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Penelope. Thank you for sharing your your experience. And I think that definitely that would be the ideal way to go is to, you know, do that. And I know your kids were a little bit younger than mine kids when I started talking about it. Um, but I also know that there has been unfortunately, so much dysfunction and damage that has even grown since they've been adults in their lives. And, you know, I I don't want to blame anybody specific, but, you know, there are times that I just don't even recognize who they are. And, and I can't understand why they wouldn't try to understand where I'm coming from at all. And mm-hmm. I don't see them going to a therapist to see. Uh, well, I know one of them, my, my middle my middle child would not. She just won't. She is a lot like her father. They refuse. They don't, they, do they have any problems. They don't need any therapy. And, you mm-hmm. know, all their opinions apparently seem to be the right ones. So I, um, my oldest daughter, and I think I've mentioned this before too, her and I went to the counselor together well, we, it was online. It was a Zoom. And that counselor, Nicole, she had asked for, uh, my daughter had asked if she could have a, I keep saying her name, I'm trying not to, but um, <laughs> I, she had asked to talk with the counselor herself one of the, one day. And I was like, okay, that's, you know, fine. You guys go ahead and talk. And, and she was really struggling with telling me what was wrong, why she, what she's holding against me. And um, and so I left the room, and she had the whole hour to herself, basically. And then I um, noticed nothing was really helping, and I asked if I could have some time alone with the counselor and to let her know my side of the story, because obviously there once she had talked to the counselor by herself, she okay. had um, everything had changed, a lot had changed, and uh, I I noticed in the counselor's attitude towards me and it was very direct and very you know just accusing and Um, the opposite of what a therapist should be she did everything the opposite of therapy and I was like really I mean I've been in therapy enough that I know you don't do that crap you don't just start right dogging on the mom and making I mean to the point where I was in tears and then she would look at me and say 
Nicole doesn't like it when you cry. Dump it off. You're trying to manipulate her. And I'm just like, are you freaking kidding me? You guys put me in tears, and now you're going to tell me I'm trying to manipulate? I mean, it just, it was a disaster, and it was something I don't ever want to do again. It, it reminded yeah. me a lot of going with my husband. And um, yeah, there's just something about, there's just something about the way they can get things out better than I can, I guess. That just, just well, right. and I'm sorry. It's I mean, that's just the most horrible, yeah. you know, it's the most horrible feeling in the world, you know, to feel that um, you're in a place, you know, that was supposed to be a venue for, you know, open and honest dialogue, didactical dialogue, you know, meaning two-sided and um, not what happened. Um, and, um Um, and I'm I'm so sorry to hear that because um, that is a very very hard thing to find is someone a counselor an intermediary you know a, a facilitator that can be truly fair and balanced um, and you're right you just said you know you know what therapy is it's supposed to be like and um, to me um, you know. It's unfortunate that you had the opportunity to have this dialogue with your daughter and that she was there um, and that this, you know, it was good to get everybody together, but it was then, you know, really tragic that the facilitator, the person that was, was you know, in the helping profession and credentialed to do so, didn't, didn't do it through bias. Um, because we know it's hard to get these, you know, families um, of origin to do the, or families of creation even to do the work together. There's a lot of reticence and there's a lot of, um, you know, pushback and to, to bring everybody into the same, you know, venue to get, to get the dialogue started is, is a feat in itself. So I, I'm so sorry that happened to you. It just makes me really angry. We have another caller and I'll listen to back one. I, I don't know if it's, it's um, Philip, so if you don't mind, I'm going to go back. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'll bet it is. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say, yeah, I think it definitely made our relationship worse or definitely not any better than it, you know, was before. And I, you know, would even mention the other night. Hey. <laughs> hey, Philip. <laughs> What did we talk about? about? Oh, I just started talking about how my family doesn't respond well to, they didn't respond well to my story, be trying to tell my story. And, um, and now there are definite walls that have been put up. I just told a little bit of a story about, and I think I've told it before. I don't know if you've been on here, Philip, but, um, that I went to therapy with my oldest daughter about a year and a half ago and the therapist, it was on zoom and we were in the same room, Nicole and I, but, um, we, she had asked, she wouldn't talk to me. She, in front of the therapist, she just wouldn't tell her what is wrong. And then she asked for time alone with the therapist and I said, okay. And so I left and she had the hour to herself. And then after that point, the therapist started really being mean to me. She was really mean and, you know, tell me I can't, 
cry because it upsets Nicole. She doesn't like like it when I cry. And you know, but they brought me to that point of crying, and then they were like, "Stop it! You don't like it when you do." And so I was just, so it was everything a therapist should not be. And I think it was definitely a detriment to our relationship because communicate, and I, I keep, you know, trying. The other night, I was here and or she came over to help me with some wedding stuff and I you know I I had I got out what I wanted to get out for a long time you guys and this is something that I should have done a long time ago and I know it I thought that the work that I was doing would help my family to understand that I'm open if you know if anything has ever happened and they can come talk to me and I'm you know, I'm starting to realize, or I did start to realize that it wasn't really going that way, that it was more they were holding things against me. So I, the other night I asked my daughter, finally point blank, did you ever feel uncomfortable around your grandfather when you were growing up or with him? And, and she told me no. And I told her, you know, the difference between me growing up and being around him and you growing up when you were around him is that all of the adults knew about him and we were all watching. And he knew we were all watching. So it was a whole different, and, and, and when I was growing up, it was all about the secret. Like, can I love you? you had said earlier, you know, it was, you don't talk about it. You don't talk about anything in our family. It's our family, and we just, you know, don't, don't say anything. And um, by that, you know, by the time that I started doing the work and the classes and I started telling people what was going on, um, I guess I just, assumed that I would be received in a loving way, and it hasn't been that way. So I, yeah, that's kind of where we, I, I think I've left off when we came on, is <laughs> kind of, I just talked about the therapist and how that wasn't right. And I think it hurt our relationship. And so I don't think I could ever get my family, any of them, except, well, my son. And my son goes regularly with his husband now too but I don't think anybody at the other part of my family will ever go to therapy and that includes my family of origin like you were saying Penelope is that they never did and you know it would be very helpful I think personally for um, my dad to get some help before he dies because he is a very unhappy sad lonely man and he wants me to kind of be able to fill that space and I can't do that and mm -hmm. I think it's I'm starting to be able to put these boundaries up and say you know what I've got enough going on I'm sorry that you're having trouble but you're always having trouble <laughs> and I just can't yeah I just don't have the energy right now I and I should have put those boundaries up a long time ago and then I maybe wouldn't have even been here in the position with my kids but I can't sit you can't say I should have. I know. That's not good. Okay, I'll stop now. Does anybody want to say anything? No, but that's but Kim. But Kim, that's just that yeah. that is part of that is part of the process of recovery is that we just going through the healing process and recovery is is we are educating ourselves. We're in a sense, you know, growing up and, and we're we're our own parents, you know. These are the things that, you know, we didn't learn within the home. Um, these are the patterns that we were carrying with us through um, 
from our parents and I you know it's it's like I finally learned I got you've got to just be kind to yourself and like give yourself time and and you know and grace to know that you know a lot of these things are this is this is completely uncharted territory we're learning as we go you know we're having to re-raise ourselves in all these different ways that we weren't subjected to when we were younger and we're doing the best we can we make mistakes too made a lot of mistakes along the way um but you know it's like god can forgive me of my sins i should be able to forgive myself of my mistakes um and um that you know it's it's hard because there's so much at stake and we want to do things so much differently than our parents did um with our children um and it is so difficult um but I, I, you know, I guess my, my message is I've been there. I get it with you exactly on this, you know, on this issue. And, you know, I, we're reparenting ourselves and we're learning as we go. And, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't punish a child, um, reprimand a child or shame a child that didn't have all the answers, you know, all at once in the very beginning, you know, it just takes time. It just takes time. And um, and we hope we hope that our children will, you know, as parents themselves, that, that they'll they'll learn to forgive, you know, us, and realizing that parent parenting is within a perfect process, um, and and hopefully learn, you know, also realize that a parent who tries. To open up the dialogue and, and, and correct mistakes or, or bring things to fruition is a parent that is trying, that is being humble, you know, is trying to address things that need to be addressed. Um, you know, that's not trying to live in the secrecy, but is trying to address things um, because the intent is um, the intent is a good one. The intent is to um, have the whole of our healing helps their healing um, and the intent is for us not to pass down those types of patterns and those experiences onto our children but to do the work so they don't have to uh, so that makes sense you know so that's the intent the intent is to try and um, set a better example you know um, and to open up the door to healing and open up the door to being to being honest. Um, so on that, you know, on that note, I did want to mention, you know, one thing I've done when when dialogue and group therapy hasn't worked is I've written letters. And we've talked about writing letters. I know that when Bob comes on, but I've written well thought out, loving letters around these topics to my children, to my husband, to my parents, to my siblings. Um, when you know, group therapy wasn't successful for all the kinds of reasons that you just mentioned. Um, and letters can, can be helpful, at least I have found, because they give you the time to to really craft and formulate something that 
um, is presented in a way, you know, you wish for it to be presented um, and not to get gaslit, like you said, not to have third-party intervention, but to, you know, I think get the truth out there, um, provide some answers, you know, become vulnerable, um, but, you know, depending on what you're putting in the content of your letter, but for me, you know, letters have been more effective than, than group therapy. Of course, I had my therapist help me with the letters in terms of, yeah. you know, how to, how to formulate them and, and how, you know, to um, best address different situations because it was uncharted territory, um, which gave me confidence in my letters as well that, you know, that they had been crafted with the intent of being, you know, helpful, not harmful. Um, and done in a loving way um, without, you know, blame, um, self-blame or putting blame on anybody else. But I have found that that writing letters um, has been very helpful. And sometimes, you know, I've written a few letters that I've never actually sent. So, but I've sent the majority of them. Um, So, for what that's worth. Even to your parents? Oh, yeah. You sent it? Did you send it? Good. I wrote, yeah, I wrote a letter to each one of my parents um, in the very beginning, which was really hard work. And it really, the letter was just to kind of address what had never been spoken of, which was the abuse. And um, they were loving letters. I opened up the letter saying that, you know, I was writing a letter, um, with the intent of having it be a loving and truthful letter. And I was hopeful that that would be something that they would value coming from their daughter. And then I said that um, at two buckets, there was, there was like one paragraph was like all the great things, you know, that all the great memories, all the great things about their parenting that I experienced growing up, um, you know, Emphasis on, you know, extended family. Um, you know, um, there were just certain things that were, that were, was you know, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times, but there were some great times and there were some great things in terms of our family um, and their parenting that I did make note of because it wasn't 100% all bad. So I talked about the good part first, then I talked about the things that were more difficult second, you know, it was kind of like two suitcases, you know, I had in my mind. The first paragraph was a suitcase of the good things, like things I want to pack and take with me in my life and in my own parenting. And then, like, the second paragraph was, like, the other suitcase, the abuse, you know, the difficult things, the things that I wanted to give back to them um, that I did not want to take with me and I was not going to bring into my family or the raising of my children and quite frankly, everything that was in the suitcase that I gave back to them were actually their abuse that was perpetrated upon me. And I've been carrying the blame, and I've been carrying the guilt, and I've been carrying their, I've been carrying that for them. If that makes sense, because it had been allowed to be in secrecy. But when something's in secrecy and a child's been abused, the child carries it. So 
When I wrote in the letter, it was no longer secret. I named it, and I gave it back. Um, at the end of the letter, I said that I'm doing well. You know, I've learned some things. I'm in therapy. Um, I'm going to be okay. I want you to know that I'm going to be okay despite all this. And that I still love you. You know, I did. I still love my parents. Um, I did. Didn't say I forgave them, yeah. per se. But I did say that I loved them. You know, but I reassured them I was going to be okay. And I still love them. You know, and I also made a point of saying in the letter that the reason I was doing the work in the first place was to become a better mother and a better sister, a better wife, you know, a better daughter. Um, And, you know, the letter was um, originated through the work that I was doing. So I hope that all made sense. But, you know, it was a letter that was written in a a lovely way. It was a letter that was truthful. And it was a letter that when I sent it to my dad, I'm glad I had. He was, his letter was the first one I worked on. I'm sure glad I did because I think, as I told you, he was diagnosed with um, end-stage pancreatic cancer. And from his diagnosis to his death, it was um, two weeks. And so here is my father dying. Mm-hmm. He has been my abuser, you know, my entire life, and it really never stopped. I mean, it, it went on till the day I, till the day he died. Um, and here he was on his deathbed, and I read him this letter. It was the first time I'd had an honest dialogue with my father and I'd ever spoken about the abuse or its impact on me. Um, but in in telling him that I loved him, telling him I was going to be okay, I think I did mention that I had forgiven him in my heart. Um, you know, I was able to give that back to him. Um, but I think it was also a gift for him to, you know, because it helped him release him of the guilt in a way, to know that, you know, I was going to be okay, you know. Um, yeah. Despite it all. Anyway, it was, so it was a good practice. Um, writing my mother's letter was difficult. It took me five years to actually finish it. Um, but I'll tell you something regarding the letter to my father. I don't know if, you know, people... Um, had used this modality of writing a letter to your abuser um, in their own healing. But um, after I felt a, a sense of peace and a sense of calm that I never felt in my life, I always felt fear and terror, shame, guilt. Um, I was constantly invalidated, you know, throughout life, uh, deliberately denigrated by my father. Um, so I guess you could say verbal abuse. Um, but I also found my voice in that letter, and I was shaking in my boots when I wrote in that letter. It was the scariest thing I've ever done in my life. But after I'd done it, I felt like I, you know, I regained my voice, and I felt, I felt it was strong. I felt strong and at peace. So, um, I just mentioned that as you know, letters can have for me it had the had that kind of uh, impact. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, you're welcome. I don't know if you've done letters with, you know, your family of origin or your family of creation or not, but um, that was my experience with with writing letters. Yeah. Yeah, I think, well, did you have anything you wanted to say? 
or no. No. I don't want to say anything about the letters. Um, yeah, I I think for me it's been I I kind of did write my dad a letter similar to that, but he had apologized to me when I was pregnant with my oldest daughter and he got um, throat cancer. And at the time, and my mom was still alive, my mom was still around at the time, and I remember feeling like it was because, that he was apologizing because he could die. And that, you know, a lot of it was my mom kind of pushing him to do it, which it was. I know it was. And um, so it didn't feel very real at the time because there was so much going on anyway. And um, and so, I mean, I told him I, you know, forgive him and stuff. But it really wasn't until after my mom died. And he did, he came to me and apologized at church, I I had invited him to church forever, and my mom had just started going to church right before she died. And um, so he was talking, I should have gone with her, probably. But um, he, and then he was baptized. And then there was a time, because I was going to his new Christian class with him and helping him with all that, and I, um, and then he, he, um, came and apologized one time. I'm sorry, I got distracted by something. But, um, and I accepted that apology. I felt like it was a little more sincere than the first one. However, I don't want to say but, but however, I, um, there's still a, kind of a, expectation that I'm going to take care of him, I guess. Maybe that would be a good way to put it. And um, there were many years after my mom died that he you know, kept talking about moving in with me, and I say, no, that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And, but I still, I would never come right out and tell him, you know, no, it because you have abused me. That's never going to happen. There was a day, a time when... Um, well, he got really, really sick a few years ago, and then when he started, had to have a feeding tube. And um, he was getting really nasty with me. I was at the hospital every day with him, and he was being really mean. He wanted me to help him and, you know, take on some of the doctor stuff, but then when I would make a decision, he would get really mad about it. And so it was just a real pain. So I, I finally did write him a letter that said, I'm an adult now. You cannot treat me this way, and if you are going to treat me this way, then I'm not going to come around. And that was really the first time I've ever said anything like that. And um, he got better for a little while, but he is, he kind of, I mean, I think like anybody who struggles with their own trauma and don't get help for it ever, you know, there, there's this roller coaster ride they're on constantly. And for me, I'm trying to get healthier, and so it's very frustrating to see that conflict going on. And um, and I know there's no way he's ever going to go counseling or do anything. It's not 
often, but I do know that he's he's not in very good health, and um, a lot of that has to do with him himself. He he could change that if he chooses not to, and so there's a lot of things that I'm just kind of recognizing now. Going, why would I have? Why do I have to be the one that's responsible for this man? I mean, it it doesn't make sense that I should have to be responsible for this man. And I don't want to for him. And so I have really stepped back a lot. And and then I also, I think I've mentioned that I felt there was no support when I had my surgery. I was at the hospital every day with him all the time, you know, but when I had my surgery, he didn't even come around or call for over a month to see how I was. And it really hurt. And so I'm I'm like, you know, I'm at a place where I'm going to say, no, you guys have had your opportunities. This is, you know, this has been going on for a long time. We got to a point, I thought, especially with my dad, that we had kind of this understanding and he respected me and for, you know, doing what I'm doing as well. And there are times that he's a great cheerleader for my work that I do too. But, um, but there's still this underlying oh, well, you need to take care of me, and I I can't do that. And I think he's starting to realize that, and I think it's scaring him a little bit because he is not in very good health. And I, you know, for sure don't want to be so guilty or anything if he passes and I'm not paying as much attention as I should. But then again, I think I've done what I was supposed to do. You know, I've forgiven him, and I've taken him back into our lives, and now... I'm at a place where, like I mentioned earlier, um, specifically one of my children who holds against me that I didn't call her sooner. And I don't, again, I guess it comes back to how, how, how would I have done that exactly? And then knowing how kind of volatile um, some of the people are in my family and so we can't ever have just a conversation. It's always got to turn into a power struggle. And, um, it's just sad. It, it's really sad because I am really struggling with everything that my daughters are throwing at me and then also having my dad over here saying, oh, well, I need help. I, I'm not able to do my pills up. I, you know, I can't, I can't hardly walk. But there, I, and I feel bad about not feeling too bad about it, too, because there's so many things that he could do to help himself. And one of them is, you know, when I was over there just recently, he was like, stood up and started walking. He said, see, I can't even walk. And he almost falls down. And I'm like, you bought a $5,000 walker. Right? One of those really fancy ones, you know, that has brakes and it has a seat. And it sits in his room. He's never used it. But when he was first told that he might need a walker like that, somebody, I don't, it might have even been his insurance company or something, gave him a walker. But, of course, he had to have a nicer one, a more fancier one that he's not going to use that could just sit there, I guess. So, and there's all these yeah, other things that are playing into this. But I'm, I'm just not wanting to feel real sorry for him because he's not doing anything for himself either. He's just sitting over there withering away. And I don't necessarily want to watch it and be the person that has to take care of him because he's not taking care of himself. So 
anyway, there's my long winded. <laughs> My story. Well, I mean, again, no, yeah. don't be sorry. Don't be sorry. <laughs> because, I mean, I'm a, I am opinionated, and I'm sorry, but I, I'm going to be a little bit That's bold. And I'm just, well, besides the fact that he's verbally given you some, you know, positive um, feedback on the work that you're doing, especially with children, I, I just... This is a man that abused you in many different ways. And when it came to the fact that you had some physical manifestations of the abuse and you had surgery, he was not, he ghosted you. He was not there for you. Didn't mean anything wrong. And, and he caused this pain. And now he's in his older years um, struggling and expecting you to clean up his mess. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And, and not even try it. Yeah. Not even try to do anything. Right. And to do everything. It, it, to me, the pattern just seems like. You're still getting dumped on. It's just in a different way. I mean, relationships have reciprocity. And, you know, this doesn't seem like a relationship with reciprocity. And I know um, you're a loving person, you know, and I I don't know the whole story about, you know, his, I know some of the story, but I mean, about his acknowledgement of how he hurt you. But I just know for my own self, you know, it's difficult to care for someone who's abused you and abused you severely. And I think, you know. And really does attack, to, like, that remorse, too. I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to Exactly. Not acting. Exactly. Like I mean, I, like I think this man abused you in the way he abused you, and he used you for his own pleasure. And now to me, it seems like he's using you for his own pleasure again, a different kind of pleasure. And, and I don't know, you know, where it says in the Bible, I know we have to forgive each other, but I don't, I think God is through the Bible and there's, there's a lot of data in there to show if you wanted to get religious and we're not a religious organization. So I'm thinking from, you know, yeah. if you're a Christian <laughs> from a moral standpoint, you know, where's the line, right? I, I think there's enough lines in the Bible to say, you know, you don't need to be, God hates abuse. You don't need to stay in a situation that hurts. It's abusive abusive and I think he's still using you for his pleasure at least for he feels that I I should be helping him in some way you know yeah well you know 
everyone. There, there are two, there's two paths to take. You can be a resource to him, or you could be a rescuer to him. A rescuer would rescue him and take care of him. A resource would provide him resource places or services that could help him at this time in his life. And I think you have to decide if you're going to be a resource or a rescuer. Yeah. No, I've already made that decision. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, yeah. And it's even hard to be the resource for him because, you know, he'll expect me to do it all. And he did finally, I don't know how many years it took, but, um, you know, even through all of my my spine surgeries and stuff, I was over there cleaning this house. And I kept saying, there's got to be somebody who can do this. I shouldn't have yeah. to do this. And I know yeah. that people in the building, you know, had cleaning people come over all the time and they weren't paying for them. So it had to have been through the county or whatever. Yeah. Finally, we found somebody who gave us, you know, the right information. And so you know, for about the last six or nine months or something, he's had somebody yeah. coming in and cleaning this place. And he thinks that she is just, the best thing in the world and I'm like you can have that you can be the gold her his cleaning lady and my aunt seem to be the golden children right now and you know what I'm perfectly happy with letting them be that <laughs> I'm tired of it I don't want to yeah. <laughs> anymore I but mean my aunt will only go so far I mean it's not her brother it's on the other side my her brother or his sister who I stayed with in Strasburg is um just to set up with him as I am because we've tried many times to help him and he gets mad at us. So he can't keep pushing us away and then saying, oh, I need your help. You know, they don't understand that, I guess. Yeah. Push somebody away, they're not going to want to stay around. So, so. so Candace won't do any of the care, like when it comes to going to the doctor. She'll take him to the doctor, but she won't go in and, and find out what's going on or anything, you know. So, um, I'm like, well, that's fine. I don't care anymore. If he wants to tell me what's going on, let me know. But I was over there the other day, and he just started listing off all these things. I mean, I was in tears because of what was going on with my daughter and my husband. And I, you know, I look at him, and he just goes, oh, well, I really can't do my pills anymore. I need you to come over more often and do my pills. And I really need to probably have a ride this Thursday to the doctors that I can give blood and I need this and I need that and I just went oh okay. no he needs to have a nurse it's been over a week no he needs to <laughs> yeah and he wants you to rescue him from that I'm sorry I'm just going to say it and you know what you can provide a yeah. resource because there are home health nurses that come out um yeah many different issues yeah, where number. they can yeah manage medication and so <laughs> you give them the number you can set it up you can set the initial meeting and you walk out and you're providing them, you know, you get your resource to provide what he needs and he can choose to do it or not. But I know that it's really hard when you're in it, you know, to make that change when someone's pulling you in for me. And, you know, sometimes with us, you know, we're hyper vigilant, right? We're, we're um, hyper attuned to the needs of others, including our abusers. And the detriment of ourselves, you know, and that's where you need to figure out where the line is. And 
I think a lot of, well, for me, I think it's come with age because I know I wasn't even interested in starting to listen to people who have these issues that, you know, like Philip's age. That's why I really, you know, admire the younger crowd who are starting to get ahead of this a little bit more. So it's not quite as ingrained in you. And I think that really does make a huge, I mean, it's always going to hurt. I'm not saying it's going to be better just because you started earlier, but, um, you know, I don't know, everybody's story is different. Yeah, it's just good that they are aware, a lot more aware than I was. And um, I still try to. For years, even through all of my surgeries, when he wasn't supporting me, I was still trying to be there for him. And I've got to go back to my equine therapy this week, so I'm really happy about that. Good, good. I I need her. Good. Well, this is part of the this is part of the journey of recovery, right? Part of the fun, yeah. With all the players, yeah. So I wonder if Philip, Philip has any other thoughts. Well, I don't have any other thoughts except I wish to show when I'm longer. I'm sorry, I'm. Sometimes well, I wish the show went longer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I um I admire you, Philip. I really do. I think that even just, you know, wanting to it it's healing to hear other people's stories and what they're going through. And I think even though Penelope and I are at different stages in our lives. You know, I, I hope that you can kind of see that there's, there is hope. I mean, we are functioning. <laughs> we're a part of society and we're actually doing good in society. Um, but we're still going to have those struggles too because we're still survivors. And yeah. I think sometimes with my family or even my you know, people that I work with at times, um, don't remember, they don't want to remember that. It's like, I think that my response is sometimes a little bit different because I'm a survivor. And I think I mentioned one time I was in, I'm in this book club where we're reading a story about a kid who's being abused at home. And, um, and I relate a lot to that where all of the people that are in the group, because it's, a um, for Illuminate, who is the organization that the nonprofit that gets the money, the grant money, so I can do my classes. And, um, you know, one of the ladies decided to do this. So they're all like social workers or CDC, you know, workers or um, forensic accounts, you know, all that stuff. And um, so their perspective always comes from kids that they've seen or things that they've been through. And I notice, you know, a lot of my perspectives are more from, my life and what I went through. And um, at times I want, you know, it's probably the whole imposter syndrome thing that I think I play with sometimes in my mind. Um, But 
yeah, do I really belong in this group of people that are all, you know, talking about all these cases and stuff, and I'm like a case. <laughs> so I don't know. It's just it's interesting at times to see where you're at and figure out where I'm going to fit in the world even going forward. And try not to have that imposter syndrome feeling when I'm in a group of people that are just peers. I mean, you know, they have a little bit more education than me, but we're all doing the same work. So my thoughts. That's true. <laughs> That's true. You know. Do you ever feel that at like when you're teaching? Do you ever feel like an imposter? that imposter syndrome? You know, I that's a great question, Kim. I interestingly no. I felt an I felt like an imposter when I was um working in business development and sales marketing for my 26-year career with two big Fortune 50 companies. That I did. But wow. as a teacher, I had started my healing, the healing. Um I had started doing therapy. I started doing the work and and really speaking my truth and um, and letting going on NASCAR, of course, and telling your story and having it archived as you know, really putting it out there in the world. And so, actually, teaching was the first profession where I I felt like I was showing up completely as myself, but the complete opposite because I had I had bro- broken that silence. So, but. So to answer your question, yes and no, not teaching, but yes, and absolutely. Um, my longer, you know, my longer career, over 25 years in business, um, sales and marketing, um, in these, you know, you know, kind of high-profile corporate environments, I, I felt like a complete imposter. Yeah. Yeah, and it could be similar to even what I'm now, because it is, it's they're basically peers, you know, like you were working with at the time that it it feels like, you know, to me it just feels like they've got so much more education and knowledge and and stuff. So that's what I think brings on that imposter Mm. syndrome. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What about you, Philip? Do you ever have that imposter syndrome feeling? What was the question again? Sorry, I was in I was in a noisy place. Oh no, that's okay. No, I I was just wondering if you ever have like an imposter syndrome feeling, like you know you're in a place that you you know you're supposed to be, but then you kind of feel like you're not supposed to be there because you're not qualified or don't have as much education. Does that ever happen? I used to feel like that. I used to feel like that. But I got over it, thankfully. Good job. And where? Where was it? Was it a place you worked or at school or do you mind sharing? Or you don't know? It was everywhere I would go for a while. Everywhere. Yeah, my home, school, work, and church, and the grocery store, everywhere. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. 
felt like that. Does it does it ever come up? Does it ever creep up anymore? Are you? Um, I think I got it handled. It might come around once in a while. Good. Yeah, yeah, because I'm sure if you had all of that anxiety, it was hard to do anything. That was pretty much your world, right, at that point, right? School and home and church and... It didn't let me excel at anything. You weren't able to get ahead on anything. Do you know specifically how you got over it? Do you think it was a therapy? No, it was going to jail and being homeless. And then you didn't feel as much. You felt like maybe you belonged more where you were than being homeless. Is that kind of... I, I accomplished a lot when I was homeless. So, yeah. So that helped me gain confidence. Well, good. Well, that's a great story, tonight. even though I kind of pulled it out of you a little bit. But thank you for sharing. Because that is, a, you know, there's a lot of people probably out there that are in that position or could be in that position. And for you to say that you felt a lot more accomplished because you were able to come out of that and work out of that, that's very encouraging to others. So thank you for sharing that. So we've been able to chat now for the whole hour and a half. <laughs> Pretty impressive. Anyone there? Oh, there we are. <laughs> there we are. I, I went really silent. I thought, oh, did I lose everybody? <laughs> no, you're very impressive. Very impressive, Kim. Yeah. And I think we covered some yeah, great topics tonight. Um, again, yeah. for those of you who who didn't come in right away. Um, this is Penelope, and I appreciate Kim taking over uh, the host role tonight. I added an unanticipated um, oral surgery today, and they were they knocked me out a bit. So I'm I'm slowly <laughs> coming to a little bit, becoming a little bit more lucid. So um, thank you, Kim, for taking over, and hope hopefully my contributions were something that uh, were um, actually um, I was articulate enough. Hopefully for them to be understood. Yes. Time will tell <laughs> in the archive when I go back and, and listen to it later. No, absolutely. No, you are, you are always very, very articulate, no matter whether you've been out of it or not. But I just hope you feel a lot, feel a lot better soon because I know that. Me too. And it usually takes me a long time to come out of that anesthesia. So, yeah. yeah I'll be you know, a little, yeah, a little, a little challenged with, yeah. But that's life. And thank you so much for being on. I know, part of life. So much fun. <laughs> so thanks. It's good to yes, hear you. from you tonight, Philip. <laughs> it's good to be here this weekend. Well, we'll talk to you all soon. And um, as Penelope likes to say, and I agree that there are enough adult eyes and ears out there to protect all the children in the world. 
we just have to be the adults and we have to stand up for them. It's our responsibility to do that. So thank you, everyone. Have a good night. See you soon. Thank you, Good night. Good night. Good night. Thank you.